0: Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast, where our guest today is Kahi Picaro, the CEO of Parlay for the Oceans, Hawaii. Kahi is also co-founder of Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii, an incredible initiative that is removing absolutely massive amounts of plastic pollution across the Hawaiian Islands. This podcast was recorded back in February 2020 at the Global Wave Conference being held on the Gold Coast, Australia, so before the world got a little bit crazy. In this conversation, Cahi and I talk a lot about the similarities with the work that he was doing with Sustainable Coastlines, the work that I was doing with Take 3 for the Sea, and how we're both now working in this realm of how we can drive purpose-driven impact businesses to help the ocean. Obviously, Parley for the Ocean are a real leader in this space. The collaborations they have done with some of the world's biggest brands really set a new benchmark for where corporate responsibility meets a completely new way of adjusting your supply chain to get away from polluting plastic. We're talking Adidas, Corona, American Express, the list goes on, let alone the incredible work they do around galvanizing art and creativity and music and celebrities and science. They really are a fantastic company and organization. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, thanks as always for tuning in to the Ocean Impact Podcast. <laughs> Great, all right. I'm joined by um, Kahi Bakaro from uh, Parlay for the Oceans, but obviously a very important previous role helping to build sustainable coastlines Hawaii, so a lot of interesting synergies I think from where I'm, I've come from and where I'm at heading into this world of Proper for Purpose, so lots of fun stuff to talk about today. Um, let's have a little bit of a deep dive into, into you and particularly your relationship with the ocean. Um, let's, let's learn a little bit about um, some experiences you've had, your life attached to the ocean and why that inspires you uh, today?
1: Oh, I think it all comes down to being a surfer. Um, but before I even got there, I always had a relationship with the ocean just being from Hawaii and, and having a family that was very intrinsically connected to the ocean, um, just as much as we could playing in it and whatnot. Um, But I had like a throttle, in a sense, put on when we were young based on the bad uh, stereotypes of surfing and I was pushed into the regular sports of football, baseball, basketball, um, all those main sports of which I really got very passionate about and loved being an athlete. Um, But in high school, um, when freedom started to uh, be more opportune, I started surfing. And absolutely had my world changed um, and the love for the ocean really set on fire and that was that was really that the the rest of my life is going to be how do I get in the ocean more so when did it start to appear
0: that this ocean that you had this relationship with that it had problems that not only were you witnessing those problems, maybe you talk about some of those first experiences, but then the other side is knowing those problems and maybe something you could fire
1: up and try and address. I think that the pollution side, not just from a a solid waste, but also just from the chemicals and sewage outflows and whatnot, really started becoming apparent to me when I went to college, uh, when I was in San Diego, and constantly getting sinus infections and having to turn to netty potting after every surf in order to avoid getting another sinus infection. Um, just because there's sewage in the water, if the surf's firing and barreling, you're going to go out. Um, at least I did. And the that was something that was like, wow, this is heavy, and it's not sustainable. But it, it didn't really necessitate me um, taking action. It was just kind of like the, the recognition of an issue. Um, and then as life progressed, I, I um, got into the corporate world and uh, got into real estate development, building mid-rise and high-rise condominiums. And in the real estate crash of 2008, found myself without a job, but with a buttload of cash. So I went surfing for two years with my uh, girlfriend, who's not my wife, and uh, that's when we really saw it. It was traveling around the world and seeing the externalities of a Western lifestyle being perpetuated and uh, um, really it, it having a huge detriment on these, these third-world countries that we were visiting. Um, the ones that you see in the magazines, the one that the WSL chases, and, and uh, just seeing that like I was very much a part of the problem. Um, so then the, the problem became more apparent there, but it wasn't until I came back home to Hawaii after those two years I was standing on my own local beach with my friends from New Zealand who started Sustainable Coastlines there. And I was like, guys, this is where I grew up surfing, like, look, the the community every morning comes out. I wanted to show them a clean beach, and I was like, the community comes out, they clean up stuff that washes in, and we're all good. And they're like, Kahi, are you fucking blind? And uh, I was kind of taken aback. but knowing their, their Kiwi humor and your Aussie humor, like it, it, it was like, okay, well, what are you getting at? They're like, Look at your feet. And that's when I looked at my feet and there was microplastic. And I was like, it, is that plastic? Is that trash? And they're like, yes, dude, that is, that's that's like tiny pieces of plastic. I don't even think microplastic was a word yet. Like only the few scientists who knew what it was, but we knew it was plastic at that point. And uh, that was when I was like, the beach that I grew up surfing, where I really learned how to surf and spent so much of my life at, if I'm not seeing it, who else isn't seeing it? If I'm well-traveled, well-educated, and uh, uh, have this perspective and blind to the issue, that means the vast majority of everyone else is completely blind to it. And it was at that point when I looked at my buddies, I was like, boys, can we start a Sustainable coastline it's Hawaii here? And they're like, we thought you'd never ask. And the rest is history. So that was kind of like the evolution of, of my reckoning with the fact that we are using way too much plastic, um, we lack the infrastructure to deal with it, and that we need to raise the red flag so that we can get real solutions put into place.
0: Yeah, not dissimilar to, to my story in that it was travel that made me realize the scale of the problem and then coming back home, uh, internalizing that, and saying, well, we're not immune to it here, and of course we are causing the problem, so what can we do to mobilize the community? So, yeah, run us through that. So you've met up with the guys from Sustainable Coastlines um, in New
1: Zealand, and they, what, enlightened you to their model, and you thought, let's go for it? Man, they had a a friend of a friend um, who was like, you guys should join us on a cleanup," And uh, we were traveling in New Zealand, and uh, they put us on a ferry. We went out to Great Barrier Island and we cleaned with kayaks for like four hours. It went by in a flash. And then that night they had a raging kegger party. Um, everybody got, had a great time. Um, I had a guy pass, like my wife and I were sleeping in a board bag and we look up to this guy shuffling around and he looks down on us and I guess he was cold. And he collapsed on us, <laughs> passed out because he had such a good time I had to kick him off. Anyways, we wake up the next morning and I'm expecting to just see like a shit show. And the place was absolutely immaculate because they had no single use plastics. Everybody's reusing their cups and everybody, whatever trash they did, they had just cleaned up for four hours. So they were super cognitive to the issue of, of pollution. So they dealt with their trash the right way and the recyclables. And uh, I was like, that was so cool. Like you can, you can do community service and you can have a good time. But it, it, that wasn't the point where I was like, we're going to start sustainable coastlines Hawaii. I was just like, wow, that was cool. I, I, it was a, it was a experience that I never forgot. And, uh, um, it was just really enlightening that that was how I, I, I really met sustainable coastlines. And then they came to the, I think it was like the, it was the Marine Debris conference in Honolulu. Um, and they asked if. I knew of a place to stay and i was like of course i do you, my house you guys are staying with me um, and then that's when that kailua um, event happened where i was like we need one of these here so um i have a lot to um oh and i thank them from the bottom of my heart as much as i can um, i wouldn't be where i am today without sam judd and camden howitt yeah two uh incredible human beings
0: and i'm sure they are Equally proud and stoked at what you've been able to do with your team and people around you in Hawaii. So, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what were some of the, the, the big learnings in setting up and, and building this nonprofit entity, um, which obviously achieved a huge amount over that yeah. time? And that'll obviously then lead us into the next big part of the story, which is your decision to, to let it fly off into the sunset yeah. and do other things. Yeah.
1: Um, well, the one myth that I think that. A lot of people in the states perpetuate is the difficulties in starting a nonprofit Um, it's not that hard what's hard is sustaining it once you get it started Um, paperwork and templates and whatnot can be pulled off the internet and you can submit a 501c3 application in a couple weeks Um, I'm sure it's something similar here and and all around the world it's like file your paperwork make sure you do it right but make it as vague and broad as possible so that you can adjust it moving forward. Um, but once you get going, then it's like, how do you keep the nonprofit going? And for us, it was, well, let's make it fun. That's, that's really how we succeeded. It was in people being tricked into doing community service because they were having fun, not because they needed community service hours, not because it was the right thing to do, but because they were there to hang out with their friends. Um, it was They were there because they were going to meet new friends um, or they just wanted to give back to the, to the ocean and beaches that they love so much. So the the secrets to our success uh, has been keeping it fun and making it fun and figuring out ways to do that, be it through music, through treasure hunts, through giveaways, um, things like that. It's, it's just really been a really great way for us to sustain the momentum of where we are today.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great learning for people out there that are on that path or thinking about it, but making it fun and, and, and satisfying the demand and building the crowd is one thing, but you do need to have those smarts to obviously monetize it. So tell yeah. us a little bit about what you brought to the table, others brought to the table, and what was the secret to the success, I suppose, in terms yeah. of building a model that worked?
1: I think. This is where a reality check comes in, because I worked for no money for two and a half years. And this is not something that anybody can do. Like I was fortunate enough in my past career to be able to create a small enough war chest to sustain a period of drought for money. Um, So it wasn't just about having the money, it was about adjusting the lifestyle and like really going to, okay, I can't be going out every Friday, Saturday night and blowing a hundred bucks every night at the bar. Like I can't, you know, I I can't be buying the the brand new shortboard every three months. You know, it's like changing of the lifestyle, which then fit perfectly into this sustainable lifestyle I was perpetuating. So I was learning as I was going, not just because it was the right thing to do, but because I was being forced to. But what I'm trying to get at is, for the first two to three years of starting a nonprofit, maybe you were lucky, um, but we didn't get any grants. Nobody wanted to give us money. We had we were we were eight young, like early 30s, mid 20s people that threw beach cleanups and had parties. So nobody wanted to give us money. But after two to three years of us doing it and having a sustainable model to be able to accomplish it and keeping costs down and just having in-kind donations versus cash donations, we were able to sustain it to a point where finally someone's like, we trust you, here's five grand. And that was Jack Johnson and the Kokua Hawaii Foundation. Now gave us five grand and we were just like, oh my God, like it's raining on the bed. You know, if we had cash, we'd have thrown it up in the air. But it was just one check so we just threw it up <laughs> and uh, we deposited that and it was like the start of the floodgates and all of a sudden jack supported us or or a foundation supported us which then gave us credibility to go to more foundations and the money just continues to come in um, but that's like that 's really the, the thing is you have to be willing to make that sacrifice and realize that you know your first two three years is is going to be very, very challenging and not to give up after six months of not getting any anywhere from donations keep keep doing the passion and people will recognize it and it'll start to come through
0: What about the um, the mission of the organization from when it started to when um you know, you made that decision to, to leave it in capable hands and move on. And I guess that surrounds the issue of plastics going from very sort of low-key to mainstream. Tell us a little bit about the mission, how that evolved, and, yeah. um,
1: and where it's going now. Yeah, so our, our original mission was to inspire local communities to care, care for their coastlines um, through beach cleanups in the Hawaiian Islands. Kind of a long one and very specific um, we learned that it was too specific and that's why I gave the advice is make it broad in general. Um, because we really had a demographic that was so specific that grants and looking for funding and whatnot was too tight. And we needed to broaden it. Um, so also we had beach cleanups in there. So what, is that all we do is beach cleanups? There wasn't many funds um, or grants just for beach cleanups. Everything seemed to be around education and community engagement and whatnot. So we modified our mission to be, to inspire local communities to care for their coastlines. Super broad, anything can fit in there. And there we could start tapping into educational grants, into um, other types of ways to bring in funding that weren't just specifically beach cleanups. And then the evolution from there was, okay, we were getting in enough funding, Sustainable Coastlines Hawaii, in order to be sustainable, means that I can't be the one that's always running it. If this organization is truly sustainable, I need to be able to let go and watch it flourish and grow, and be there. Like, I, I, I'll never fully let go because it's my baby. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of directors, um, and I volunteer, I go to all the cleanups. Like, after this, I'm getting on a plane from Australia, getting back to Hawaii on Kauai, where we're hosting a big cleanup this weekend. Great. Okay,
0: so now we're getting into the juicy stuff, so dive a little bit deeper. What's going through your head? How long was the process and to the point um, when you did decide to leave? What were the circumstances? And then tell us a little bit about
1: your new role. The circumstances of transitioning away from Sustainable Coastlines to Hawaii kind of came through the evolution of just becoming a father um, and uh, being a homeowner in Hawaii, we have some of the most expensive res- like real estate in the entire world, and the highest cost of living, um, and the lowest pay. So you mix that all together. Someone working at a nonprofit can barely squeeze by with one kid and a rental. So um, I was a bit overextended, and uh, um, unless I brought in. A lot more money which didn't really just wasn't really justified based on our operating budget it didn't necessitate a comfortable enough lifestyle for me to be able to raise my family in Hawaii so an opportunity came along um, to transition over to parlay for the oceans in which I was able to expand my uh, influence more globally um, be able to reach higher-end individuals from um, from a business and a just a a influence level, um, to share my passion and get more awareness about the plastic pollution situation out to the world, Um, and at a salary that worked with New York standards, of which is more or less the same as Hawaii standards, so I could then live in a point of not being paycheck to paycheck. Um, So that was really the, the, the decision at that point was, how do I continue to do what I love in raising awareness about these issues and making real change and, and changing um, the world for, for the better, for, for my kids, for your kids, for our kids' kids, etc. But be able to survive. Um, so I didn't want to go back and, and build high-rises, which I, I could. I didn't want to go and, and work at some bank or, or some investment firm. This is an opportunity for me to continue doing doing what I'm doing, but on a a more global level, and get paid a salary which works for my family.
0: Great. So tell us a little bit about Parlay. I mean, obviously, such a remarkable example of um, an entity which has a clear sort of commercial interest, but is so driven by purpose and and using those relationships with with brands uh, and creatives and everyone to just absolutely accelerate awareness on these critical issues. Um, tell us a little bit about the brand, any changes that you've had in your philosophical approach to
1: uh, business for good, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that the, the biggest success Parlay has is bringing in the big institutional partners and the industry leaders to the table. Uh, Parlay is a collaborative space, and similar to how my past work with Sustainable Coastlines is very open to working with pretty much anybody that's willing to make some sacrifices to work with us, Parley took it to the next level where they demanded these partners to work within these confines in order to collaborate with them. And when you did that, you then in turn got the powerful machine behind Parley to help elevate your brand to a point where you are now the industry leader as it relates to plastic pollution, climate change, um, sustainability, circular economies, and improved supply chains. Uh, so that was just really inspiring, and, and uh, that's what's that's what kind of sets Parley apart. Is they came in on the scene, being like, you know what, we can no longer push these brands to the side. They're the ones making all the crap that ends up in the ocean. Let's figure out how we can change the way that they do business, and we do that by changing the culture of the company.
0: Yeah, how are you finding it? I mean. I still feel there's so much work to do between this non-profit is the only way civil society mobilizing people and then the other end of the spectrum which is pragmatism that businesses are here and they're going to be here for a great deal longer let's bring them on the journey how are you dealing with and what you're seeing from other ngos and individuals around the world in
1: sort of finding that space in the middle where we actually get it well what we're seeing is is a huge bloom of companies looking at their triple bottom line and being B corps um, companies that really take into perspective not just their how much cash they're bringing in, but what effects they're having on the planet, on the people, um, not just the people that buy their stuff, but the people that make their stuff and deliver their stuff as well. And so, so companies are starting to get it. I think Patagonia was one of the that was the pretty much spearheading company has been doing it for years. Um, but when you see their continual growth. It finally created a, a business model that proves that you can care and be very profitable. Um, so I think that right now what you're seeing is more companies getting on board to the fact that the bottom line needs to incorporate not just you know your your cash in and your costs, but your costs also need to include people, um, need to include the environment, and need to include you know everything else about the way that you do business, how you're affecting the environment. And then from our standpoint, as like a hybrid of a non-profit and a for-profit, that's a that's just a, a really beautiful meritage where you've got a company that's making some money, being able to also then create an offshoot that then uses those funds to execute projects around the world. So it, I think that the whole business world's in a evolution at the moment where more companies are going to B Corps or, or hiring firms like Parlay to help them navigate this world of how do we do business and continue long-term growth while also not degrading the planet. So it's just an evolution. And it's like if, they, if you don't get on board, you lose. And that's like, it, that's, it's a cyclical thing. Like the last time it was the internet. Now it's sustainability. I like
0: it. So about the role of um, sort of innovation, right? A lot of these brands that are producing um, products or services, in order to kind of meet these expectations of this future lens, innovation is a big part. So, what are your thoughts on the
1: role of innovation and, and maybe some insights into what Parley are doing there? The solution to plastics it's, it's multi pronged. Some people think all we really need is is a substitute. To plastic, but there's lots of them out there right now already. Um, innovation is going to have to come in all types of forms, not just material, but in the way we do business, supply chains, um, the way we travel, etc. So I think like what we really need to get to is looking at innovation as a, I guess a a, a much broader um, thing than just one little solution. It's like everything together. Um, from our standpoint, what we're doing is we are investing in material research, so creating new materials, be it through silkworms or, um, you know, recycled ocean plastic. The, these are one of our tools of innovation, but it's not the only one. Because we, what we're trying to, what we, we look at what we're trying to do is it's to end plastic. Right? We don't want any more plastic that's made out of fossil fuels or petroleum products. Um, we want a natural renewable resource to replace that. Oh, it's not here yet on a mass scale. So what we're trying to do is end virgin plastic in the short term. So if we're going to end virgin plastic. You know, there's enough plastic out there already that we don't need to be making more. Let's improve recycling, but not hold recycling up there on this pedestal because it's the last hour on purpose.
0: Yeah. Okay, so innovation in business, materials, but innovation in humans is... um... And the way we do things is is key, and I really love the presentation that you gave here at the uh, Global Wave Conference about this Ocean Uprise program of Palais And so, tell us a little bit about that. Let's uh, let's innovate the youth and, yeah. and support their absolute passion and absolute
1: pragmatism that we need to do things better. Yeah, well, you, you know, remember when you're in, in high school or, or middle school, the, the doodles that you're drawing in your and your books and whatnot are so innovative, you know, because you're not you're not held by the constraints of physics or chemistry or or you know engineering. You just you just have this imagination. You make things, and I think a lot of our education right now, which is created by elders and, and adults and whatnot, is confining these kids to really continue to perpetuate the status quo. Um, so what we wanted to do was bring together kids ages 14 to 18 that are already in this space of understanding what plastic pollution is, the issues of climate change, but more importantly, wanting to do something about it and bringing them together to show them that they're not alone and then provide them with inspirational talks from their peers, but then also from leaders like Nainoa Thompson or or Kimmy Warner or Cliff Capono and uh, getting them inspired and feeling like I can be something. I can be the one that creates this. Or my team can be the one that creates a solution to this one issue. Like, for example, we have these this one group that is focusing, focusing on commercial fishing. And there's this one piece of trash that always washes up in Hawaii. It's called an oyster spacer. And they've already designed a prototype to replace it. They are doing a due diligence trip in a couple months where they're going up to the oyster farms and kind of doing their own little cove experiment of filming and 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 trying to see what these guys are up to but then more importantly they're actually reaching out to these farms and being like hey we're a group of teens that are willing to partner with you to come up with a solution so this doesn't happen anymore so it's less of a shame but more of a collaborative approach and i don't think these types of things would happen without things like projects like the, the ocean uprise so it's really really fun to to bring these kids together and uh, give them the power and be the ears and then being willing to fund some of their crazy ideas. Aside from that, I mean, getting people together
0: to, to hack out a problem and develop a solution that can then be, right, we've got something tangible we can take away. Are you encountering that anywhere else in your personal professional life, this idea of Uh, accelerating the best ideas and helping them on their way or is this
1: quite new for you? It's pretty new for me honestly. Um, I've been watching from behind the scenes all the different accelerators going on and the incubators going on. Um, Hawaii seems to be a central point for this. Uh, We get a lot of interest from Silicon Valley to um, I think be the bridge between Asia and places like Australia um, to the main... continental United States, and bringing ideas together there and creating, um, they call them incubators, and they, they bring companies together, give them an injection of funding, take a percentage of, of that company. If they succeed, great. If they don't, well, it's a write-off. Um, but they're they're incubating these ideas and then accelerating their fruition. Yeah,
0: and that's obviously where... I'm at now in in testing out this landscape with the way I sort of look at it is you know we've won the hearts and minds now like I think there's enough mainstream awareness of a problem Mm -hmm. so therefore everyone who's part of that mainstream is willing and accepting of solutions they will adopt them but business has been slow to move right so Mm -hmm. why would we then not throw everything that we can at any solutions if they're going to fail let them fail fast if they're going to succeed let them succeed fast like we don't need to be out there with you know, placards at the moment. I'm sure I'm not uh, naive enough to say there's not a lot of parts of the world where we still do, mm-hmm. but at least in those economies and communities where it's the battle
1: has been won of the hearts and minds, let's throw ideas and money at solutions. I think you're right to a certain point, but the problem is there's so many solutions that are being put out there that are actually instruments of the industry. You know, like incineration, waste to energy, plastics to fuel, pyrolysis, Um, you know, just better recycling programs and the ocean cleanup even. It's these solutions that perpetuate the status quo. They're like, hey, we are more or less a carbon credit for your continued consumption. Mm -hmm. So donate, fund fund this project, and you don't gotta change shit. We'll take care of the problem for you. That's where my fear is with funding any solution. It's like we really need to get people to understand that there are really some solutions that don't actually solve our problem. It's a band-aid fix until the problem gets beyond the s- scale of that solution. And uh, that's that's what I'm really fearful of. Not enough people get that we can't clean ourselves out of this problem. We can't recycle ourselves out of this problem. We really need to look at the source of it and it's plastics in general. It's We gotta figure out a solution to the material itself. We've got to figure out a way to move away from petroleum-based usage of, of not just plastics but fuel in general because it all comes back to, to climate change. Um, so I'm, I'm wary of funding every solution um, and I like to focus on solutions that are aimed more at the source. Mm, that's a really good point and I think the yeah the filter that you need to adopt in
0: order to gauge whether this is just perpetuating status quo, business as usual, blue wash, green wash, or whether yeah. it's genuinely disruptive.
1: Yeah, um, And that'll be a big part of the work that we are gonna do at OIO. I recommend that you guys really help people realize that the stats that come out a lot of time in the media, like n- like eight of the 10 most polluting rivers are in Southeast Asia. We need to blame Southeast, if we could just get Southeast Asia to clean up their mess, we'd have clean oceans. Like. People need to realize that the reason that all that trash is flowing out is because, because multinational, American, or even Australian companies set up shop in these third world countries to make the shit that we buy and consume on a, on a regular. And then they also sell that stuff to the people, but in smaller sachets. And then there's no waste infrastructure, no environmental protection agency to tell them not to dump it. And that's the pollution. It's, not that the southeast asian people are are not good at waste management it's they're perpetuating a western lifestyle without the infrastructure to deal with it and i'm sick and tired of people pointing at southeast asia i want them to go into the mirror and look at themselves and be like okay what's right in front of me in front of my what toothpaste am i using what toothbrush am i using what's my shampoo bottle etc and like That's really where we need people to get. And then from there, it's like, okay, now what's in my 401k plan? I'm not sure what you guys have here, but your investment account, you know? Are you funding Shell or Exxon or BP? Are you putting money in Procter and Gamble, et cetera? And you know what? Yes, we should digress from or or divest from those companies, but we could also be a major shareholder that then changes the way that they, they do business. So yes, we should divest if we only have a little bit, but if you have the power to really invest and have a voice on these boards, do it and change the culture of the company.
0: Yeah, I think that's a huge learning curve that I'm sort of going on is that, you know, in this new incarnation of my environmental pursuit, it's not about how many people out there are participating in in a movement it's actually where the dollars are invested. And our ultimate success in 10 or 20 years' time will be how much big money we've been able to move across from those damaging, polluting, uh, degenerative uh, areas into regenerative, restorative, Mm -hmm. positive. So that to me is the only way. We're stuck with capitalism. It just needs to be conscious. Uh, It needs to be better capitalism. And that's really what we're on the journey. So tell us, um, we'll sort of wrap things up pretty soon, but yeah, just sort of tell us about where you're at now, how this journey's going for you into Profit for Purpose, and and where you think you're going to be, be heading in the next phase of your life. Hmm.
1: <laughs> just throwing just yeah. sort of
0: simple, soft questions well, in there, nothing too cryptic. Yeah, no, my, my
1: life seems to go in cycles of eight years, so I'm only one year into this next cycle. Um, I think where where we're at also as a as a country in the u.s is very interesting at the moment um i think one of the other solutions that we didn't really get to touch on um was the influence of corporations on our politics and uh, being able to um, extract that influence would really give the power back to the people Um, so it doesn't matter if you're in the u.s australia wherever if you're in a a democracy Gathering together with like-minded people and pushing for politicians that are willing to make that sacrifice to remove money from politics, I think, is a huge way for us to um, get to solutions quicker. Um, right now, it's, it's corporations rule our our <laughs> rule our democracy. world, our democracy, capitalism. Um, we can have capitalism without that influence, you know. Um, uh, but we do need to remove the influence of certain industries from our government. Um, so I think in the eight year cycle, maybe it's politics, you know I have a, a family that comes from politics, like maybe maybe that's where it is or it's or it's supporting a campaign that really pushes that through. Um, also, like from an evolution standpoint, I'm hoping to see like more circular economy type things happening in small communities that can then be translated kinda like how we've got, you know, eat local, um, you know, like trust your, get a CSA, um, know your farmer, know your fisherman, know know if if you eat meat, know where your food comes from, right? I think also smaller scale recycling opportunities and composting, etc. bringing things more Decentralized and bringing it more locally, I think, is where I really want to see our communities getting to. Because then it's more sustainable, and you create more of a community. I, I love going and traveling where you, where where you where you're driving down the road or walking down the road, and everybody says hi. You know, like I think we're we can get back to there by decentralizing a lot of the um, you know influence that the one percent has and bringing it back more to the people. So that's kind of where I'd like to see you, see us in 8 to 10 years. Yeah, look, man, um, we're so aligned on all that
0: stuff. I even suggested in another decade once I've done my stint at trying to understand the quirks of the business and capitalistic realms that you know, I might be the same, politics, but politics needs to improve in that time. And I do think it is. I think there's a, a genuine retaliation comes first from this realization of all the... You know the errors and um, all the elements of this this system that we've sort of just fallen into that aren't really serving and aren't really working. So I'm, I'm optimistic in that regard as well. Yeah. I just think we're going to have a little bit, a fair few more years of pain before we get everyone in that same mindset. Yeah. Um, love talking to you, mate. I'm going to um, leave final words to you. You can you can close out this this podcast
1: and um, leave the listeners with anything you want to want to say. Uh, Well, I think what's really uh, nice for people to realize is that the Hawaiian culture was the most sustainable culture to ever live on this earth. You know, they were in the middle of the Pacific, no outside resources, but they created a thriving uh, community. And as Hawaii evolves now, we're looking back to the past to restore some of the ways that the Hawaiians were able to be sustainable. And we around the world should start looking at our indigenous peoples and how they live sustainably on the land before colonization. And take notes and start implementing these strategies on a larger scale. And that, you know, sometimes evolution requires for us to look behind us. Uh, so I think that's what I'd like to leave it with. Thanks, You, brother. Aloha, brother.